I am so tired. And I know that everyone says that and you don't want to hear about it, so I won't bore you with the details, but suffice it to say that on days like this, when I'm so tired, I inevitably have this one moment. It's always when I've just emerged from my class in some crazy basement hole at this university and my eyelids are heavy and my head hurts, my boots are sliding on a perniciously thin layer of ice, and then I look up and I see the arts building and the Y intersection and I think about anything from an interaction I once had with someone standing in the spot where I'm now standing to what I'm doing this weekend and I just remember for a second that I love this place and that the all-nighters and the heavy eyelids are so, so worth it. Because it's Valentine's Day, the theme of this episode of the podcast is love. Love of people, but also places and things. Today we're going to be doing something a little different. We're still going to have our three stories from the Bull and Bear's own writers spread out over arts and culture, opinion, and business and technology. But we've also partnered with McSway, the Spoken Word Student Association on campus, to bring you some lovely poems about love and loss and what it's like to do those things right here at McGill University. So from the basement of the Bronfman building, we are bringing you two poets, pieces on Shakespeare, porn, and a probably gay James McGill, and it's all on this episode of This McGillian Life. I'm Sarah Farb. Stay tuned. Before we get into the articles themselves, we wanted to bookend our podcast today with two poems by McGill students, Alana Dunlop and Lucia DeLuca. So to start us off, Lucia confronts love, longing, and missed moments. Here she is reading her poem entitled, On the Universe Coordinating Our Affinity. On the Universe Coordinating Our Affinity. Although I prefer to travel light, I wish I could have carried something tangible of my time spent with you, but I'm not even left with something that is a compromise between tangible and too good to work out in a world that stretches us apart as the universe twitches with repulsion at the sight of its hard work becoming grossly distorted, makes it wonder if it had managed the near impossible in our pairing or imagined us all along. When the universe placed us in the same city three times, do you think it believed we could figure out the rest? Do you think its eyes caught fire when it saw us break its trust? The universe, still in denial, screams to its alternates, dreams we can still work out somewhere. But when my memories of you are the closest things I have to tangible, I refuse to stain them with fantasy. Instead, I remember the picnic table outside the first hostel, the beanbag chairs in back of the next, the bench at Wellington Harbor, how each long chat felt more like walking home. I remember the way you noticed my longing look into a bookstore and interrupted your sentence to say, let's go in. I remember how we disagreed on the hierarchy of the senses. I said I would lose sight last. You said you would lose touch last because it's how you know you're living. Perhaps I can be accused of witnessing this life, but somehow the universe calls us both its ungrateful children for what we could see but did not hold. The day after I last saw you, a middle-aged British woman wearing an embroidered navy blazer and a black hat with a skull introduced herself to me as Pirate Debbie. She told me about a brilliant poet she had met in her previous city, how a few days later she had grasped the affinity of now, downed a bottle of wine, and sent the poet an email suggesting that they see each other again before Debbie would go home only to return to New Zealand in three years' time and only if this world's waters don't play the universe. 
new waves crash at a new beat and inspired by Debbie, I consider telling you I would like our coordinates to merge again while they are still dreadfully close. The universe folds to sit, hinges over itself, wipes charcoal from its eyes. If you squeeze the sand in your hands tightly enough, it will fossilize, little one. I release my hands. A light rain falls from the sky. I open my umbrella upright like a middle finger, telling the universe to cut its dramatics. What the universe can swallow, I choke on. We have the same what-ifs alive inside us, but they take up infinitely more space in me. Our first story today on the podcast isn't really about loving someone so much as it's about loving something. Loving it so much that you put up with its idiosyncrasies and tedium and you appreciate its gifts. It's a kind of labor of love. And that's how opinions Jamie Cowan feels about Shakespeare. So give her a listen and let her convince you to read him when you next have a chance. I'm sorry, but there's just no reason to study Shakespeare today. Tell me what you have to gain from studying these stories in such difficult language. The words are archaic. They're nothing like our writing today. What can you possibly benefit from studying these plays? These were the heated words of my friend, a McGill Faculty of Medicine student, and they stirred self-consciousness and doubt in me. I scrambled to make the case for studying Shakespeare, both the playwright and the course. As I begin my final semester of McGill undergrad, this class stands clearly in my mind as one of my favorites, notwithstanding its heavy reading load and accompanying challenges. While he lived centuries ago, Shakespeare's contributions have resonated in our culture, impacting modern art and language in ways that individuals often fail to realize. Shakespeare's plays endure because of his multifaceted characters, whom he imbued with profound woes, complex motivations, charisma, and desperation. While his language might seem challenging to some, Shakespeare is often credited as the originator of many present-day terms and phrases. People frequently and unknowingly quote him. For instance, the phrases hurry, in a pickle, and break the ice all originate from the bard. Underlying this question, why study Shakespeare, is the question, why study literature? Or rather, why study the humanities? Journalists have acknowledged that as individuals increasingly measure the value of an education according to its perceived practicality in securing a career, fewer students have opted to pursue arts or humanities degrees. Yet I maintain, as others have, that these courses are extremely valuable, not only because they emphasize critical thinking and improve writing skills, but because they expose students to the intricacies and moral conflicts that shape human relationships. As individuals engage in a close analysis of art created throughout time, some of which recount complex characters or figures, they stand to gain an understanding of a wide range of human motivations. Thus, students may grow to understand both themselves and others better. While sometimes labeled a soft skill, the ability to empathize undoubtedly enhances one's ability to connect and build relationships. Moreover, for a student in the Faculty of Medicine, Empathy constitutes an essential attribute, one which distinguishes excellent physicians from mediocre ones. Studying Shakespeare provides one with invaluable empathy skills and fosters an appreciation for great works of literature. If one is looking for an enriching elective next adrop period, I recommend venturing to the English department and cracking open some old but timeless texts. 
there's this online game that I really recommend everyone check out. Wikipedia randomly generates two items and you have to navigate from one to the other using only hyperlinks from within its encyclopedia articles. And the transition I'm about to make would be an apt one for that game. In five sentences or fewer, we're taking you from the wonderful words of William Shakespeare to internet pornography. That's right. The next story we have for you today isn't about love, but about lust. And specifically, it's about how the data about the stuff you lust for is aggregated, monetized, and sold off, all by a company you've likely never heard of. So to talk about the silent scion of the digital pornography industry, here's business and tech's Zach Nye with a story about a little multi-million dollar company based partially out of Montreal called MindGeek. Most of us living in the city of Montreal are well aware that it houses an incredibly robust technology sector, with many international firms choosing to base their regional operations in the city. On top of this, there is an ever-growing list of startups being founded in the city on a daily basis. However, many may not recognize MindGeek, one of the lesser-known tech giants of Montreal. A Montreal-founded pornography conglomerate now based in Luxembourg, MindGeek is a behemoth in the billion-dollar pornography industry. While the name may be unknown, the properties owned by the company are expansive and vertically integrated, with companies such as Pornhub, Brazzers, and RedTube under their control. MindGeek's reach is global, with its employees spread across offices in the US, Cyprus, Romania, Canada, and the UK. At first glance, it is difficult to ascertain what exactly MindGeek does. On their website, they say that their mission is to deliver a world-class portfolio of entertainment experiences and IT solutions to a global customer base. They don't mention that the entertainment experiences they offer of the pornographic variety. The true challenges of operating the MindGeek websites, which receive a total traffic exceeding 115 million users daily, are at their core issues of technological logistics. The delivery of the content is unimportant to the challenges of the firm's operations. Compared to YouTube, one of the most well-known content distribution platforms, which has a daily viewership of 30 million users, it is obvious that MindGeek is a powerhouse of online content distribution. With their ever-growing tech opportunities, MindGeek has even branched out into virtual reality and pushes the envelope in terms of development of immersive content. Not only are they further developing content delivery methods and experience types, MindGeek also has access to one of the largest pools of user data. Through tracking of user movements and browsing, MindGeek tailors their plethora of content to the interest of the user, further boosting views and revenue. Due to their vertical integration of distribution and production, as well as their technological prowess, they deliver tailor-made content more effectively than any other online distributors. The relatively low costs of video production in the pornography industry make it much easier for MindGeek to quickly produce content that their users seek. Pornhub, for example, which accounts for approximately 100 million of the 115 million daily MindGeek website users, has one of the most transparent data analysis operations of any content delivery company. The site provides frequent updates on recent search trends, user behavior, and more. Despite the taboo surrounding discussion of erotic matter, MindGeek has become one of the most powerful players in the online content delivery field, and is a strong competitor in the field of technology within Montreal. Their abilities in technological growth, traffic support, and data analytics are evidence that while we may not talk about them often, perhaps we should. The final story from our podcast today is a real doozy. We all know James McGill, the man for which our school is named, was a slave owner. But have you heard the rumors that he was a gay slave owner? Did you take the time to investigate whether those rumors could even possibly be true? Well, arts and culture's Sarah Manuzak has and did. So here she is talking about the love story that is quite literally at the heart of our campus. It was a small, fun fact in a tour. 
an innocuous tidbit that many have forgotten, but it has haunted me every single day of my McGillian life. James McGill, over the course of four years, has become my most important gay icon. As a 16-year-old applicant, I traveled to Montreal and stepped first foot on McGill campus at an admitted student's weekend. I went through all the motions of a university trip, the presentations, the forced interactions with other applicants, the tour, but that tour in horrific weather did more for me than any other McGill propaganda because it forever implanted in me a terrible, wonderful, certainly incorrect notion. James McGill was a gay man. Stopping outside the arts building, my tour guide slipped in a little fun fact into her presentation. One thing many people don't know, she explained, is that James McGill himself, the founder of the university, is buried right here underneath the arts building crest. Of course, this perked up my teenage ears. A corpse on my university campus? It's more likely than you'd think. But her story got better. There's a bit of a ghost story along with this burial. James McGill was originally buried at a different cemetery, which was closed down in the 1800s. The university resolved to move his remains to campus. But when digging him up, they also dug up half of the remains of his close friend, as later revealed by a DNA test on the remains. So actually, there are 1.5 people buried under the crest. My tour moved on, but my brain did not. Who just moves on upon hearing that information? Since that day in 2016, my mind has not known peace. Here, I intend to lay out some facts and hopefully answer some of my own questions about, fingers crossed, Games McGill. So I don't get sued or expelled, I'll say it now. I have no affiliation with the estate of James McGill, and I put forth my conjectures as fictional regarding the sexual preferences of this esteemed institution's founder. That being said, what the fuck, right? Immediately, my mind went to how this could be possible. Did nobody use coffins in the 1800s? Where was Mrs. McGill? Who was this mystery best friend? Fortunately, a quick skim of James McGill's Wikipedia page gave me the name of his burial buddy, John Porteous. From there, I was met with a wide expanse of nothing. Who was this Porteous, and how close was he really to McGill? John Porteous was the fur trading associate of Mr. James McGill. However, he was clearly much more. Upon the death of Porteous in 1782, James McGill became the effective father of his children, raising the youngest, Charlotte, as his own from near infancy. Because, didn't you know, James McGill had no biological children of his own. In Stanley Frost's biography, James McGill of Montreal, it is revealed that McGill bought the plot in Dufferin Square Cemetery, where Porteous was buried, and moved him there from his original place of rest in 1797, 17 years after Porteous's death. Later, after his death at 69, nice, in 1813, McGill would be buried in the same plot, next to a man who died almost 30 years before him. Such friendly devotion, isn't it? It isn't. It's extremely gay. According to Frost, McGill's grave was bestowed with an illustrious monument, commemorating him with great honor. And in the true manner of a gay counterpart, a side panel referred to John Porteous as also being buried there. What's more, James McGill had reportedly abandoned the fur trade entirely in the years before his death. 
So why was he buried with a remnant of his past, now cast aside enterprise? Say it with me, gay. Many of the mysteries surrounding this McGill Porteous burial can be written off as inconsequential. McGill wasn't buried with his wife because she was Catholic and he was Protestant. He didn't have any natural children because, I don't know, he was busy. His remains were moved because the Dufferin Square Cemetery was closed. Porteous was moved with him because people used to be buried so close together that you couldn't tell whose body was who, right? And surely James McGill was heterosexual and devoted to his wife, with whom he probably never had sex. More so than the man he was buried so close to that they literally could not dig up his body in the 1870s without also digging up Porteous. All of this I can accept as coincidence, but what drives me to believe in my games McGill fantasy is the sheer mystery surrounding John Porteous. As opposed to many of McGill's other fur trade associates, John Porteous is an online ghost. No Wikipedia page, no archival mentions, except in the queries of his possible descendants living in the Montreal community. Even in the excerpts of James McGill's will available through the McGill archives, no mention is made of Porteous, ostensibly due to the fact that he died before the will was finalized. Suspiciously, though, there is no mention whatsoever of his desired burial state in these excerpts. The university even removed Porteous's mention from the McGill monument upon his reinterment. Could there be a conspiracy trying to destroy the memory of Porteous from history? No, probably not. Would I pay big bucks to see that will in full? Yes. I can only imagine how McGill's burial clause goes. Make sure to bury me in the same plot as John Porteous, a fur-trading friend of mine, even though I have now renounced the fur trade. Yes, I am aware I can afford a second plot in the cemetery. No, I don't want one. Dig up the 30-year ground and bury me so close to his newly decomposed corpse as to nearly mistake us for one body. How has nobody investigated this yet? In the end, I see John Porteous and James McGill as the gay couple that every couple should be hopelessly devoted. Even the other half of Porteous remains, now sitting under complex Guy Favreau, were lovingly placed there by the man who seemed more devoted to him than to anyone else, James McGill. McGill displayed complete devotion to Porteous. He raised his children, buried his body, and later was buried next to the man himself. So where is the mark of this best friendship on history? If nothing else, I take comfort in the fact that these two possible lovers will remain together, at least partially, on the McGill campus. And I know two body parts in particular that will certainly remain close together forever in that grave. Their hearts. The last little piece of our podcast today is another poem about love brought to us by McSway, McGill's Spoken Word Student Association. Sometimes, as you'll hear in the piece, Having a connection with someone can mean pain and self-doubt, but it can ultimately resolve into strength and self-love. And there's something about being young and in university that makes that duality all the more vivid. Here's Alana Dunlop reading, finally writing something down. A quick warning to our listeners, this poem does contain sexual content and explicit language. I don't think about you anymore. I only think about myself and climate change and the fact that I'm finally writing something down. I think you hurt me because you disrupted my sense of self, my perilous confidence that's never quaked before. 
You knew me, all facades aside, and you consciously decided that I wasn't worth the trouble or the time. So I broke in my new shoes, so I had sex with five guys after you. So I was telling everyone I'm fine, but I kept going out with people I didn't like because I didn't trust myself to decide, and I kept up a life of working, partying, and barely writing, and I kept getting disappointed that no one took me aside and told me I was wrong about you. I took parts of you and transplanted them into me, like your favorite poem, which I proudly tell people is my favorite poem, like you didn't whisper read it to me in your bed with my head on your chest. It was merciful to let me get over you with tarot card apps and birth charts and astral projections. The alternative is just having to face the gruesome truth that I didn't do it for you, even though I tried so hard and I neglected studying for exams and I thought about you so much I could create an alternate reality where you're the first Adam and I've mapped out all the scenarios where we meet. But I don't think about you anymore. I think about graduate school, I think about traveling, I think about what to wear to my 20th birthday party. I let people like you go, I let you live a life of emotional lacking, I have loved myself enough in the past three months to erase whatever you did to me. Pride pushes out all other grievances. I've walked so much, in sun. I want to scream from my second floor balcony that I don't think about you, that I don't have to, that I'm finally writing something down. And that's our show for today. So thank you to the three staff writers who read their pieces and to our poets, Alana and Lucia, and to Cindy Shee on audio, as always. Until next time, happy Valentine's Day.